It wouldn't be the holiday season if there wasn't candy, right? Celebrate the holiday season with the Holiday Crush. They've sprinkled candy with a holiday theme and fun-packed challenges every week for five whole weeks, finishing on January 4th. The more challenges you complete, the better your chances of unwrapping delicious rewards. So, are you ready to crush the holidays? Play the Holiday Crush now. Download it from the App Store, Google Play, or Windows Store for free. Terms and conditions apply. Hello and welcome to the Football Grad Podcast. I'm your host, Manuel Veth. And as always, I'm joined by Tim. And Tim, we're going solo today. Andrew is busy doing other things, hanging out in Siberia, um, watching snow drifts, I guess. There's always something to do in Siberia, I guess. But yeah, we're going solo. How are you? Hello. How's it going? Right. I'm back on the West Coast. We're basically reunited. Yeah, I'm glad to see you, see you back here. Welcome back, Manuel. And I'm glad that you made it home uh, eventually in one piece and um, yeah i'm excited to do the pod we have a interesting and again a little bit different topic for today so yeah let's do it yeah i'm, I'm really excited i mean this is a very, it's going to be a historical topic we have some homework to do first a couple of topics to go go through that uh you know occupying us in in russia mainly because it's still the winter break isn't much happening other than training camps and a few transfers and even on the transfer front it has been relatively quiet i think the the one that's sort of come across my desk that looks very interesting is konstantin rausch to dinamo moscow right tim um konstantin rausch of course from Köln, but a russian national team player because he was born in russia to uh, parents of the german minority living in the soviet union and he played his first national team game against the team that he's now going to join, right? That was that <laughs> that friendly against Dinamo Moscow at Kimki Arena, which was his first national team game. Um, a bit of an odd move in a lot of ways. You know, there's a lot of controversy about it because Dinamo Moscow don't exactly have a lot of money. But they're paying 2 million euros to get Konstantin Rausch. I'm very surprised by this transfer because there was rumors about him potentially joining Spartak and... Um... You know, that was an interesting move. I don't watch Rausch on a week-to-week basis, but I was very impressed with his performance uh, for the national team uh, when um, Russia played uh, Argentina and uh, Spain. And, uh, you know, given that he he is a player who plays in Köln, and even Köln is not doing so well this season in Bundesliga, but just a, a player who had a Bundesliga experience and that, you know, European mindset, I was pretty confident that he will he could get potentially um you know a better uh, deal not in terms of money but in terms of uh, like a club he would join and nothing against dinamo moscow but really really they haven't had a great uh season this year and um you know we know that they were they relegated to fnl so to me it comes comes really as a surprise because i thought that konstantin Rausch could join 
um, you know, a stronger team. I'm just thinking right now, I'm not sure if it's possible, but for example, the position of left back in CSKA is not an obvious one. They have Shenikov, they have Nabatkin, but definitely Konstantin Rausch is, can, uh, can compete with them. Um, like I said, there was rumors about him joining Spartak. Rubin always can use a player, even they have uh, uh, Nabiulin, but still, you know, I, I was like, obviously... Krasnodar could have been a good option for him. So I'm very surprised with that move, but uh, it seems like it's a done deal. I already heard from a few sources that he will join Dynamo Moscow. Well, good luck for him. Uh, maybe after the, maybe that gives him an opportunity to get a more solid spot for the World Cup, and maybe then after that get a better move. I don't know. But it's definitely an interesting one, and uh, a Bundesliga player coming to Russia, it's, it's always interesting. Yeah, I saw Konstantin Rausch a few times this season um, when I was in Köln. And um, he had a bit of a bad reputation. You know, lots of things are going wrong in Köln right now, this season. Uh, they've only won two games. And that was the last two Bundesliga games. So I guess they're on a winning streak now. Um, but a lot of fans sort of scapegoated him for the things that were going wrong. And then a lot of times, unfairly so, um, because you know, misplayed corners and he doesn't always have the best cross, but his work rate is unbelievable. And so a lot of people scapegoated him for a bad situation. And that happens, right? When things go wrong, people look for, look like to point fingers, uh, so most of the time unfairly so. And for poor Konstantin Rausch, he has been the scapegoat. So he's been fearing that his, um, he's been playing a little less on a new coach, Stefan Rutenberg in Köln. So he's worried that he, you know, this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for him to play at a World Cup. He's not going to play for the World Cup for Germany. So he has a big chance now to play for Russia. But to do so, he has to play in week in, week out. I guess at Dynamo Moscow, he will do that. And he will do it in Moscow, so which will be easy for Stanislav Cherchesov to watch him, right? I think that is sort of the mindset that he's basically guaranteed 100% playing time. Mm-hmm. The one thing that I'm that confused me about this entire deal is where do Dynamo Moscow get the money from? Because this is a club that was bankrupt last year, almost dissolved, you know, went into bankruptcy while playing in the second division. Um, the ownership situation with the Rotenbergs, Akali Rotenberg, of course, uh, is very difficult. You know, right now the club is officially owned by the Dynamo Sports Society, but the Rotenbergs are still mingling somehow. There is still the VTB sponsorship they, the stadium isn't completed, uh, although they are working on it. So there's all these question marks, and all of a sudden they are able to pay 2 million euros for, for this guy from the Bundesliga, who's not going to make very little money. So that's, that's a bunch of things I was just wondering, how are they doing this? And this is something, you know, maybe it's a sign that there's different ownership coming in. I, I don't know. It's, it's an interesting question all around, I think. Yeah, it could be. Uh, to be quite honest, Dynamo is one of those clubs when it's really, really hard to understand the actual ownership because um, historically Dynamo is a police club and the police is still involved in the ownership. Like you mentioned, there there was a VTB deal with the bank and there's the, the Rotenberg brothers were involved. It is very, very hard to understand really what's what's happening in there. And um, But at the same time, um, uh, there was also uh, rumors about uh, Dynamo buying the striker of Tosna. Uh, Markov, who was who had the choice of going to Zenit or to Dynamo, and uh, according to the rumors, he chose to go to Dynamo again, probably for the same reasons because he get more playing time. But at the same time, we see that there's some transfer activity uh, in Dynamo, and you're absolutely right. Sometimes that happens. Russian football is slightly odd in that way. Sometimes you 
have a few transfers coming in, and then there is an announcement of some ownership or an investment. So this could be an, an, uh, something that is happening behind the scenes, which we don't know, and they are not announcing. But again, we're talking about Russia, and we're talking about Dynamo, which is uh, probably the most complicated ownership situation in Russian football. Uh, maybe Rubin is kind of the same complexity, but it's it's really really complex club to um, to to really to understand what really is happening inside the yeah. club and whose 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 money is, is being spent. Uh, so we just have to watch uh, for for a little bit. But uh, I agree with you that this uh, a little bit of transfer activity is um, um, is is an interesting sign. Uh, have you also heard the story about Pogrebniak? Well, yeah, that's the the other confusing bit, isn't it? Because we don't okay, know yeah. what's happening with him. Apparently, he's he's leaving, but you know, I've heard that he's leaving in the summer or he's leaving now, and he might be sold. Um, do you have some, do you have an update on that? Well, just for the listeners to give an idea, uh, Pogrebniak, who, who used to play in in English Premier League, he played for Reading, and uh, he went to play for Dynamo Mos- Moscow, and he uh, got a very, very good contract. It, it was a um, significant, uh, significant amount of money, and pretty much he didn't play. Like, just to, really, to summarize, he didn't really play, but he was getting lots of money, and Dynamo was looking for many, many uh, different ways how to, um, how to pretty much load him off, sell him, or just pretty much to cancel that contract because he wasn't playing, he was doing his job, he was showing up to trainings, but he, was, he wasn't he was playing, he wasn't good enough to to really to to play uh, for, for Dynamo Moscow. And uh, they were looking for different ways to, to get rid of him, and um, they found it. <laughs> and But, but the, it's a funny way. He posted a picture when Dynamo had a match against Anjou. He posted a picture that he went to see uh, to Italy to watch Juventus versus Inter game, I believe. it was. He posted a picture from the stadium with his two brothers that he is at the Juventus stadium watching the game. And apparently like he was injured and he had the right to go. But Dynamo used this as an opportunity. And everyone understands it's not a discipline idea. It's just really to get rid of him. They're using this little opportunity to cancel the contract, to kind of use it that he was to be supposed at work. But he, instead of being at work, he was at a football game, at another football game, and other clubs. And they're trying to use this to really to just to, to cancel the contract. But the, the contract is done so properly and so well that really don't have chances as of right now so it's very funny situations that they try to like i think the 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 statistic was that he's he's making somewhere over like 1.5 million but he's he spent playing on the field about like 26 minutes like i'm i'm not getting you the right numbers but like it's it's something ridiculous as that so like in one year he made 1.5 1.5 or something like that, and he played, let's say, 30 minutes. Um, it's not exact numbers, but this is very, very close to the truth. So, yeah, I'm making pretty decent money for very little minutes played. <laughs> exactly. And then, then the way they're trying to get rid of him is <clears throat> seems quite typical yeah. of, of, of Russian football. I'm sure, I'm pretty sure we have not heard the end of this story. Um, Pavel Pogrebniak and, and Dinamo Moscow. Of course, he was at Stuttgart as well, right? Pavel Pogrebniak. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah. he was part of that very good Senate team that won the uh, UEFA Cup. So, you know, he was a, he was a decent player once, but, you know, he hasn't done very much in a long time. Just maybe a final thought on Dinamo, Dinamo Moscow. Remember about a year and a half ago, just before they got relegated to FNL, uh, Jorge Mendes, the super agent, came in and sort of signed a deal with them to land players. I don't know what happened to that deal, 
when they once they got relegated. But you know, this this is the kind of kind of stuff that goes on at Dynamo Moscow. There's so many people steering the pot, right? So many exactly. people cooking and uh, doing their thing. And it's always been like that. Like even in the, in the 1990s, when, when they signed all these Brazilians and Portuguese players, um, we are, we are agents and, uh, Yorapian was an, an infamous agent was involved with them and got them to sign Brazilians. And then they made deals with the Selecao in Brazil to have them play for the Brazilian national team and increase their transfer value and all that kind of stuff that happened at Dinamo Moscow. It's been, it's been an odd club, a bit of a soap opera for quite some time, hasn't it? Yeah, and due to complex ownership, and um, it's kind of sad because it's a historical club. This club should be actually going for fighting for European places, and they are fighting relegation. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And we'll definitely keep an eye on it. Dinamo is actually, I always compare them a little bit to uh, Hamburg. They're the Hamburg of Russia. Mm, yeah. At least they were, because there were only, there's, there's only been, well, until Dinamo got relegated, there were only three teams that never got relegated from uh, Soviet or post-Soviet football, and that was Dinamo Moscow, Dinamo Kiev, and Dinamo Tbilisi. Those were the only three teams in that entire region that never got relegated to the second division. And then, of course, Dinamo Moscow got relegated um, a year and a half ago, right? And now it's only Dinamo Kiev and Dinamo Tbilisi that still have a spotless record. And there's not that many teams around the world that never have been relegated. So it's they had a very long run. In that term, and uh, it's a very historically significant club. When you when you go to the stadium, although these days it's really hidden away, you can see a um, Yashin's Yashin's memorial, right? Uh, the the legendary keeper, who at one point in time was the best keeper in the world, and uh, many still say he may be the best keeper of all time. So you know, there's, there's a historic club, and um, it's really too bad that it's such a complicated issue. So we'll keep an eye on everything that's happening at Dinamo, Tim. Um, something that we have to keep an eye on too, real brief. I uh, don't want to spend too much time on this. Fedor Smolov, any updates? No, not really. Just before we move on to, to Fedor Smolov, I'm, I'm happy. I'm, I'm excited that our regular listener, Pete, he will be excited because he always wants us to talk oh, about right. Dinamo. So here's Pete. This is this one was for you. So hopefully this is that was interesting. Oh. In terms of Smolov, uh, no real updates. Uh, still same same situation. And I think, like we said, uh, we will need to wait for this. Um, un- yeah. It's uh, nothing really, no news, no updates. He joined uh, Krasnodar in the training camp, but like we said, this is this is this is will happen because it's not it's not like situation which we will discuss in a little bit. It's not like Zuba or Shatov situation. He's still a player of Krasnodar, and it's not like he has a conflict inside the team. He, if nothing happens, he will stay in Krasnodar. So it's not like it's it's a dramatic situation. He's just looking for ways to you know to make his career better and extend it. Uh, but at the same time, he's fairly happy in Krasnodar, so he started the, the, the training camp, but uh, the rumors are still the same. Uh, potentially Europe, uh, potentially Zenit, or maybe staying in Krasnodar. Yeah, I think the the agency, his official agency actually, they on Twitter, and they tweeted out that uh, because the big link is West Ham United, and they tweeted out that West they, they, yes, they have been negotiating with West Ham United, so that's been confirmed by his agency. But that West Ham United fans don't get too excited because they've also been negotiating with other parties and they haven't really made up their mind yet what is the best way moving forward. Um, we have an article up on this on footballgrad.com. And um, as I outlined there, I think, you know, that's basically on the article still the latest that they, they're in talk with various, various uh, different clubs. 
Um, West Ham are offering 17 million euros. And we'll see. I guess we'll see what's going to be the future of Fedor Smolov. My feeling is that if he does make a winter move, it has to be the perfect winter move because going to England is going to be difficult at this stage, right there in the middle of the season. Fedor Smolov, as you just said, he's back in training camp because they took off all of December and, you know, they're basically six weeks of holidays. And then getting straight into a league campaign would be very difficult. So I could see him going to training camp and they, I don't think there's going to be the decision till maybe late January, if at all. Right, Tim? Yeah. Yeah. I think we, um, uh, again, it's like we said, we already said it's a very complicated situation. And, uh, yeah, joining Europe, I agree. That's a big question because really joining after not being in training for six weeks, joining the, uh, one of the most competitive leagues. In the world and like physically um, tough league that really and it's not in his, in, in his interest because the World Cup is coming up and he will be I think the way things are going right now you know could have a couple of years ago you could have said that Zuba could be the uh, the top striker of the team it looks like right now um, Fyodor Smolov is the number one player in Russia and he will be the leader of that team. So uh, that's why it's also, you know, it's that's a little bit more complexity because he's pre- pretty much Russia's hope. The way I see right now, the way I think Cherchesov sees the situation. So it is it is a tough, it, it is a tough call for him. And we just hope that it will be the best option for him. Yeah, I think so too. So we'll keep an eye on this. Um, I personally think he, whatever he does, he has to be very careful because as exactly. you said, he's Russia's most important player. At the moment, and probably the in that in that team, anyways, not necessarily in the entire league, but in the in that Russian team, he's the most recognizable star, and um, very much you know he saw that at the Confed Cup um, has very much become that leading force. He's supplanted a guy that we want to talk about next as the the main striker up front. So you know, um, it's not just it's almost like a national interest, really, at this point. It's not just Fedor Smolov that we're talking about, but we're talking the future of the Russian national team ahead yeah. of the biggest stage um, that the team will ever find itself. And that's the uh, World Cup at home on home soil. So I think this is this has been uh, the Peter Smolov story is something of national interest in Russia. And that's something that we can't underestimate in that regard. So I'm pretty sure that whatever he will do, he'll, he'll, he'll think long and hard about making the right decision because the right decision is going to be very difficult to make. Now, the, the next thing, you already kind of touched on this. Suba and Shatov. Um, that's really our last bit of recent news that we can talk about. Suba and Shatov have not traveled to Sanit's training camp. That's usually a sign that something is in the bush. Um, move transfers are being prepared. Atom Suba has been really, you know, he was Fedor Smolov about a year and a half ago. He was that main striker up top for club and country. And now, you know, with Sanit, uh, massive revamp at Sanit with, with all the Argentinians coming in. And um, the the way they're playing these days is very different from what it used to be. So Tsuba has been very much on the out. The same is true for Shatov. He's been very much on the out. Looks like they're both going to be gone this winter. Yeah, it looks like it looks like all the sign says that they will be gone. Uh, both of them didn't really fit uh, in Mancini's. They don't fit in Mancini plans and Mancini uh, playing system. Um, like you said, Zuba for for his style of play, he just um, doesn't really 
fit in that in that kind of play than Mancini's playing. He and Mancini gave him a few chances, but really, Dubai believe scored one goal in in the league. Uh, Shatov, uh, well, I think he, in terms of playing time, he might he might he might fit the system. But Mancini is not happy with him. There was this uh, f- famous uh, situation. I think it was a couple couple second last match day when Zenit played. I believe it was Te- uh, Ahmad. And um, Shadov came on as a sub and then was subbed off. And it was really, he took it, he didn't take it very well. Uh, it was really, yeah, not a good thing. And it was, that was a sign that pretty much it's, it's, it's done for him uh, in Zenit with, uh, with the current uh, coaching staff. So in terms of options, uh, Zuba has many, many options because he is, like, like you said, you're absolutely correct. About the two years, a year and a half ago, he was the, the main, the main hop for, for, for the Russian national team. And he was pretty confident that he's the best striker and he was the best striker in Russia. And now he has a very, very um, big chance of missing out on the World Cup. So this is how things change in football very fast. As of right now, he has a few options. He has uh, an option of going to Krasnodar if Fedor Smolov leaves. That's the option, but uh, like we already discussed, it's it's a complicated deal. He has an option of going to Arsenal Tula uh, because he has a very good experience of working with Miadrak Bozovic and Rostov. So that's the connection. There's another interesting one of going to France to play for Rennes. And uh, there's also interest from two Turkish clubs, from what I understand. And there's also a rumor about him going to Ufa. And uh, Ufa has um, right now his former... Uh, Zenit teammate uh, Sergei Simak. Well, they didn't play through together, but there, there's the connection. And uh, even the um, c- uh, captain of Ufa, As- Azamat Zaseev, he said that Zuba called him and he asked him if he will be, you know, welcome to the club. And he said, of course, he will be. Uh, Simak will give you time to to play. So. Uh, as we can see again, it's not it's not an obvious situation. There's not like one. Uh, choice for Zuba. We also remember that uh, there was a talk about him joining Lokomotiv before the season, but um, Lokomotiv doesn't really need right now another striker. So um, that's the situation with Zuba. So many choices, nothing really set in stone. Um, yeah, so it's, it's, it's again, it's, it's he, his primary goal, as I understand right now, is just to get the playing time in before the World Cup. And I don't think we should be surprised and if he joins a fairly lower uh, league side uh, as Arsenal Tula on maybe uh, Ufa. Yeah, maybe to, to wrap this up, Tim, uh, it's going to be very interesting. Of course, the big story breaking in England the, at the moment is that Alexis Sanchez have less, is going to leave Arsenal, right? Arsenal then are looking at Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang from Borussia Dortmund. Borussia Dortmund are looking at the, looking at striking options as well. So I feel like, you know, there's always a domino that falls somewhere. Yeah. And that affects all of Europe in one way because Andy Carroll is a Dortmund are looking at Mickey Batsusai. Uh, as a result, Chelsea are looking at Andy Carroll at West Ham. As a result, West Ham will bring in. A, you know what I mean? It's like, yeah, 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 yeah. We don't know how those dominoes are going to fall, but I feel like there's always that one big transfer in Europe and then all the other stones click into place. And I feel like, you know, with Fedor Smolov, if he makes a move, that will massively affect what will happen to Shadow and Zuba because all of a sudden there's a spot free Krasnodar, right? They have money yeah. to spend, and I, that's just the ripple down effect. And usually we had that last last summer as well, where um, where we retract the Andre Yamolenko story, which did not happen until Neymar moved because Neymar moved to uh, Paris, 
then Barcelona replaced him with Dembele, and then Dortmund replaced him with Yamolenko. You know what I mean? It's just, we'll, we'll yeah. see. We'll wait and see. I think um, there's always that moment in every transfer window where one big deal happens and boom, all of Europe kind of starts moving. So I guess that moment is going to come very soon and we might be able to discuss all of this next week in our next podcast. Who knows? I mean, Firo Smolov has been linked many times to Borussia Dortmund. I'm just saying, you know. Yeah. Maybe, maybe. That, I think that will be yeah, that will be a good one for for me and you. That will be interesting. Uh, it'd be a brilliant move for football grad um, because <laughs> we have so many links with Dortmund, and of course, um, being able to write stories on it. But we'll see. I'm not saying that's likely. I'm just saying, you know, we'll just watch, watch, watch the space for the next week at Football Grad Live. We're gonna always keep you updated on Twitter, etc. And I'll I'll keep an eye on it. But watch the space because I think there's going to be a lot happening. But that's the future, Tim. We want to talk a little bit about the past. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's a bit of a special topic. As we said, the, the Russia is in the transfer, is in, in, in the winter break right now. And um, talk about a few things that traditionally when, when, when you look at the winter, it's always the time when people start to reminisce about not the past and the nostalgic past. And uh, a few weeks ago, we talked about the CAS Cup. Remember that? And the, the, this, this post-Soviet tournament that they had. Um, and I want to talk about this tournament in just a moment because it usually happened at around this time, sort of as a winter preparation tournament. And still does. I think the junior national teams are now involved. Um, but to, first, I want to get there. And that was the collapse of the Soviet Union, the CAS Cup and the CAS national team and the, the, the disbanding of the Soviet Vishaya League, the top league, the Soviet top league. And I kind of want to go back in that time and sort of educate the listeners of what happened actually at that time, right? And then you were, we were chatting on WhatsApp about you saying, because you started following Russian football in 1992, that was basically the first year it was an independent league. And to maybe just go back to that time and say, well, look, this is what happened. And it's really interesting because the, when I wrote my PhD on Soviet and post-Soviet football, I only realized then how important that Soviet Vishaya Liga was as a league, as a competition. Remember, in 1988, it was one of the top three leagues in Europe in terms of UEFA coefficient standings, right? It was one of the best leagues in world football. It produced teams, and we talked about this um, a few weeks ago in the the best, the ten best matches involving Soviet and post-Soviet teams. It produced teams like Dynamo Kiev. It produced teams like the Soviet national team that came second in the European Championships in 1988 as well. Uh, it's it's kind of sad going back and looking at the history because in 1989, it all became unhinged, right? With when the Georgian teams, when Dynamo Tbilisi and the other Georgian teams started withdrawing because of the the split up of the Soviet Union. Uh, do you remember this time, Valtem? Well, yeah, I was fairly young, but I still remember this is when I started uh, following like the 1992 was the first actual proper tournament which which I followed as a Spartak fan. I, I My dad... Uh, watched the games b- before in the the last uh, few years of the uh, Soviet league, and I still I remember watching some games. Uh, like there's a, I remember how I started following Spartak because he was watching the game between uh, CSKA and Ararat, and uh, CSKA and Ararat were playing, and he said uh, we were just watching. I was just doing something. He's like, which team do you support? And uh, and I said, oh, I support this team and uh, red and white and blue. Uh, CSKA was playing in those colors. And then he says, why? Because I said, oh, I like their shirt better. Because Ararat uh, from Armenia, they had just very boring white shirts. He says, oh, and I support Ararat. 
I said, why? Their shirts are not very beautiful. He says, yeah, their shirts are not as good as CSKA, but this will be better for Spartak. And this is how I became a Spartak fan. My dad told me that, okay, so the result will be good for this team, which I never heard of before. And I said, okay, if my dad supports Spartak, then I'll be supporting Spartak. That was, I believe, 1991. And this is when I kind of started following and I became Spartak fan in that weird way, not even watching the team play. But, um, but the transition was very interesting because, like you said, Soviet League was very, very st- strong. And then in pretty much, I don't know, it's especially maybe for the listeners in, in USA or in Canada, it just imagine like a, the whole feeling, like let's say you live in California or you live in Ontario, or you live in British Columbia, and you're part of the country, and then your province or your state becomes an, a country. It's a, it's a very strange feeling. Even as a kid, I remember that because I remember in 1992, I went to school and we still, because the, the Russia was a complete mess at that time, we still had the Soviet um, books to study. But they had to skip certain parts, for example, in history or in, you know, in, in re- literature lessons. And they had to say, oh, listen, like we're using the old books. This country, which is they talking in the books, it, it doesn't exist anymore. We live in a different country. It's called Russia now. So they had to make all those those comments that, OK, this is old country. We live in a new country. And that was this, exactly the same feel uh, with the Russian League because the, the league was structured in a, in a strange way. Um, there was like two groups, Group A and Group B, and so many teams just because, 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 because the league broke down and, uh, you know, all the uh, Russian clubs uh, from the Vyshe so- Liga from Soviet uh, joined. Obviously, they stayed in the Russian League, but they had to bring so many other Russian clubs, which were not good enough. And but they just had to complete the the league uh, to 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 play the first tournament. So it was a it was a very weird time in the country and as as a as a follow up in the in the football. Yeah, it's it's interesting because as you know, I spent some time researching my dissertation in Georgia, and I got to talk to some people at Dynamo Tbilisi who were very involved when the when Georgia decided to withdraw. And this is in terms of football because the the country withdrew. Uh, in 1990 from the Soviet Football League. But at the same time, they weren't actually withdrawn from the Soviet Union yet, right? That process didn't start until uh, December 1991. But they basically, so the, the Georgian Football Federation was the first government body in the Soviet Union that actually withdrew from the Soviet Union. It was before anything else. And it, was, it was highly political because Georgia, the, the, the Georgia believed that they could, they could sort of put pressure on the Soviet Union. And, um, Forced the Soviet Union to to give them political amends by withdrawing the football federation, and it's really interesting when you talk to to people that were very heavily involved at the time with the football in the country. So by 1990, the Georgia had its own national league, but because officially the the country was still part of the Soviet Union, they still got money from the Soviet Union from the federal funds, right? So they were playing their own football. And they even for, for one year, they renamed Dinamo Tbilisi into Iberius, which is the historical name for Georgia, right? Very nationalistic feelings at the time. And they were telling me like, you know, look, during the time of the Soviet Union, Dinamo Tbilisi was this massively supported club, right? They averaged 70,000 people for every game. It was the, the team of Georgia. It was the biggest event in the entire country. Um, when they were playing, they were, they were sort of the Georgian national team playing in this league. And, um, when they first, in the first year of independence, they still had a lot of people come out, 
But then it very quickly kind of dropped off, you know, because all of a sudden Georgia was its own country. So people from the different Georgia cities like Batumi, um, all the other places in Georgia, they all started started supporting their own teams in those cities instead of supporting Dinamo Tbilisi, yeah. right? So it very, very quickly broke down for them. It very much backfired. And it's interesting how you, when you talk to some people now, uh, they don't want to be part of the Soviet Union anymore. But they were saying, well, when we were playing the Soviet Union, it was actually better for our, for our football club because Dinamo Tbilisi was someone. But it's interesting how they thought that they could use that pressure to kind of break off the football federation and take out Dinamo Tbilisi out of that competition and sort of like say, well, here you go. We're taking our team out. We want independence. And it's, it's, it's fascinating how the Soviet Union at the time wasn't strong enough to react to this because of all the things that were happening, right? The economic pressure, the Gorbachev reforms, all that kind of stuff made it impossible for the Soviet Union to keep together the glue. And this is, I think, what you just said with the different states. It's kind of like when the United States, if California says all of a sudden, no, well, we want to break apart. We want to be our own country. Um, Normally, the, the government would do everything in their power to stop that, right? Militarily, etc. But the Soviet Union at the time, there was, the, the power wasn't there anymore. The glue wasn't there anymore to keep all these different nations together. And I mean, the next one to leave was the Baltic states. And the Baltic states were always difficult, right? Because the Baltic states had a very much their own identity. Um, a lot of the other Soviet republics were quite happy to be in the Soviet Union, but because of the way that this, the Baltic states were annexed by the Soviet Union during World War II, they were really adamant in wanting to leave, right? Yeah, Baltic states they were like always were kind of like not really, well, I can't say not really part of the Soviet Union, but they're like they were on their own. I remember going to as a kid, it was still Soviet Union, but uh, me and my family went to. Lithuania, and uh, that was my uh, first um, introduction to Russian swearing language, and it was done in a such weird way because uh, Lithuanian kids were playing table tennis, and I could understand, I could not understand what they were speaking because they were speaking in their language, but I could understand uh, the swear words, and it was saying something da 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 da, da which I understand, and then a swear word in Russian which I did understand. It was a very very first introduction for me to like. To mix of to to like a foreign language, which I haven't haven't heard. I was a little kid. I was I don't know, three four years old. But I can understand the swearing out of that uh, table tennis game, and that was pretty much like you know even back then. So like Russia, it doesn't sound different uh, in let's say in Canada or maybe in countries like Switzerland. But like in for example in the United States of America, Russia is very similar in terms of language. Russia like in Soviet Union like. Like, like especially Russia, uh, and I I was born in Russia, so I'm 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 a part of Russia Republic. Uh, like we all speak Russian. There's no like it's the biggest country in the world, but we all speak Russian. Like there's no there there are some little dialects, but they're so mean like they're so meaningless. It's 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 so so like going to the Lithuania as just being exposed to just the Russian language and. Um, as a kid going still as a part of Soviet Union and hearing people speak other language, to me, that was a very, very, like, it was shocking. And that just shows, like, how different and how fairly independent or not dependent to Russia the Baltic states uh, were at that time. Although even in Georgia, they still speak, a lot of people still speak Russian there, but it's yeah. very, it's very different. Uh, if you want to hear the difference, even if you're a northern speaker of the Russian language, 
just watch on yeah. YouTube. They have all these old games from the Soviet uh, Vishaya Liga on YouTube, which I, I often like to backwatch them. And when we do old historical match reports on footballgrad.com, we often embed them on the, uh, in the article because they're very cool. But when you watch the Dinamo Tbilisi games, it sounds like, I don't want to say every Georgian is a chain smoker, although that's not far from the truth, but they all sound <laughs> like chain smokers speaking Russian. And then they have their own, some of their own words, right? It's very, yeah, yeah. it's very different. The Caucasus, this, I mean, the, we've, we've talked about the Caucasus on this podcast before, how ethnically difficult it is. Um, not just in the Russian Caucasus, but in the entire Caucasus region, because there's little pockets with different languages. I think there's 167 different nationalities living in the Caucasus. The place is mental. But it's, it makes for a very different sound in terms of Russian. And it's, it's really interesting. The thing that you say, it's a Russian in Russia isn't that different. There's slight variations, right? With Siberia and Moscow. Um, there's a very typical Moscow dialect that sounds a little bit snobbish at times. Yeah. 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 Um, but it's not like in Germany where every city has its own dialect, like very strong dialect that someone, like if you're from Hamburg, you will not understand someone from Munich sometimes. That's how bad it is. So it's not like that at all. So when you, I guess it really showed how these different nations on the fringes were so different in a way. And that, that explains why the entire thing fell apart, um, in a way. And you can see that with the different, with the different teams. And I think the, the one thing that I always like to compare the Soviet Vishaya Liga to, I always say, look, it was kind of like the Champions League of the Soviet Union, wasn't yeah. it? Because it was the best teams from all around this multi-state country from these 16 nations that built, put together the Soviet Union and they all had their best teams there. And that's why it was such a great league. That's why it was a league that did so well because there was entire republics that put all their funding into their best team. And, you know, you, you talk about a team like Ararat from, from Erevan, right? That was the team of Armenia. Um, and there's a fascinating picture when they played Bayern Munich in the 19, in 1975, I believe. Um, at the Khatstan Stadium in Armenia, and you can see people in the stands, and the, the, the stadium is uh, at the bottom of a hill. I went there for my PhD dissertation. It's, the stadium is at the bottom of a hill. Nowadays, it's a, it's a market, and uh, people were on the hill because the seventy-five thousand seat stadium was already sold out. So people were hanging off the trees in the hill to try to get a glimpse of Franz Beckenbauer and Co. Watching this game, I have to tweet out the photo one of these days. Uh, maybe with this podcast, I put a tweet out the photo because this photo is just—it just shows you how m important these individual clubs were in the makeup of the Soviet Union, right? And then when you go now, and the average Armenian club nowadays is happy if they can average a thousand people per game, right? It's because it—it's not important anymore. All of a sudden, all the political meaning is gone because the the Soviet Union is gone. And that's, I, it's, it, it shows you why people are, in some ways, it shows you why people are sometimes nostalgic for it. Do you love watching live TV but are tired of your huge cable bill? Sling TV has the same top cable channels for as little as half the price, so you can save hundreds of dollars while still watching your favorite sports, news, reality TV, and more. Ditch cable and get Sling's total live streaming solution with free local channels. Setup and installation are included. Make the smart choice and switch to Sling TV. Get the best of cable for the best price. Learn more at sling.com slash cut cable. That's sling.com slash cut cable. 
Set up an installation included with $49 down and $20 a month for 12 months. Restrictions apply. Want to be sure you always look your best? The Reflections LED Rose Gold Makeup Mirror from Conair makes it easy with all the features you need to groom and apply makeup with precision. Lifetime LED lighting won't ever dim or diminish. No replacement bulbs needed. One-time magnification provides a full view or 10 times magnification for close-up tweezing and details. Designed with a beautiful rose gold finish, the mirror rotates at 360 degrees with a 7.5-inch viewing surface to attend to every feature. Makes a great gift. Go to conair.com for the Reflections LED Rose Gold Makeup Mirror now. Yeah, absolutely. Because something that I want to kind of like follow up with, you're absolutely right that all those different republics, uh, Ukraine, Georgia, Armenia, they had everything focused on those teams. And uh, especially like Dynamo Kiev was was a good example. Like if there was a good player in, in Ukraine, most likely they will end up in Dynamo Kiev. And um, like the transfer system was was very strange back in the day. For example, CSKA, they used to just uh, get the players go to the army to get them playing for CSKA or for any other uh, army clubs because uh, CSKA is not the only army club in Russia. They're, uh, they're, it's called CSKA because it's the central club of army, but there's some other clubs of un- army. Like, for example, right now uh, we have the team called SKA, um, in 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 the top league, so it's also kind of has this this. But right now it's not not the same. But back in the day, it was it was the case. So pretty much the it was kind of like uh, the top clubs like Dynamo Kiev, Dynamo Tbilisi. All those clubs were like you know like kind of like a national team for the whole republic. They would uh, hire, they would recruit all the best players uh, from around the republic. And they just pretty much put their best players in the um, Soviet Fusha League. Like, that's, a, that's a perfect way to call it. It was the Champions League of um, Soviet Union. That's why it was so strong and, and those clubs did so well on the European stage. Yeah, and it's interesting because when it, it all collapsed, um, and I remember researching this um, in my PhD dissertation, Vyacheslav Koloskov, who was, of course, then later on, the, he was the president of the Soviet uh, Football Federation and the minister of sport um later on of course he was the president of the russian football union and he was quite significant actually uh, in bringing the world cup to russia as well um so he was he has been an eminent figure but it's interesting when i did my research for my phd dissertation so when the soviet union collapsed Vyacheslav Koloskov actually worked really hard and it's really interesting because there was all these different football federations all of a sudden so the soviet union collapsed all of a sudden the russian federation had two or three football federations that all claimed that they were the one Football Federation. And Vyacheslav Koloskov, um, he was, of course, the head of the Soviet Football Federation. He worked feverishly in trying to sort of keep it all together. And he even proposed um, a league, that the league, the Soviet League, would continue to play. And he got all these teams from all over the Soviet Union that were pro-Moscow. So teams from Moldova, uh, teams from the cent- from Central Asia, um, not the Ukrainians, sadly, but like Azerbaijan, uh, Armenia was still interested in staying in, but Georgia wasn't. So he tried to get all these teams to form this new, um, well, the Commonwealth Independent States League that would replace the Soviet League. And, um, that all panned out and there was conflicts back and forwards. And then all of them, then the Moscow club said, no, look, we're in a very difficult financial situations. Some of the republics that you want us to play in, like Azerbaijan, and Moldova, there's actually war there right now. We can't go and travel there. It's not yeah, going to yeah. happen. So the, the 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 big Moscow clubs, Dynamo, Torpedo, Spartak, Lokomotiv, and CSKA, 
they got together in a conference and said, no, we have to form our own league in order to make sure that we do not lose the UEFA coefficient, that we do not get banned from European football, and that we have a league that we can actually compete in, right? Because some of these things that Koloskov was promoting uh, did not comply with UEFA rules. So then Koloskov got together with these guys and the Soviet Football Federation became the Russian Football Federation. And it was actually a smart move because that way they were able to keep the UEFA coefficient standings and they were able to um, make Russia the official successor of the Soviet Union. So all the other republics that left, even though they were all contributing to the, the coefficient standings of the national team and the, the club football, they basically had to start from zero because Koloskov made this deal and made it happen that Russia became the only successor. It's interesting. But then in the same time, he proposed this new tournament, the Commonwealth of Independent States Cup, which they were hoping would become sort of like the what the Soviet Vishaya Liga was, the, the Champions League of post-Soviet football. And that was an interesting tournament, right, Tim? I mean, uh, it, it was always played in the winter. It was um, the different champions from all over the the former USSR would come together and play this tournament. But I think there was the one issue with it is that of because the Russian and Ukrainian teams were so much stronger because when the Soviet Union collapsed, they basically took all the players from the post-Soviet states and pooled them all together and they did just brought them in on transfers that all of a sudden these other teams were not strong enough to compete anymore with the big teams from Russia and Ukraine. So you got some really lopsided results uh, in this tournament. Yeah, that uh, that tournament was happening around this time in the beginning of uh, January, kind of like uh, during the winter break, the team would get together in Moscow at uh, the Olympijski. It's um, it's uh, like back in the day, it wasn't a beautiful place. It was just like a, how you call those covered covered stadium yeah. with with. It wasn't even a plastic pitch. It was re- literally uh, astroturf. Yeah, it's not not even an astroturf. It was like on on the on the solid ground. There was like I don't know how even to call it. Like it was just a, like layer of fabric. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's an astro. Fabric. That's an that's the original astroturf. Uh, original, okay, yeah. Yeah, it's basically like playing on sandpaper. <laughs> yeah, so it was very dangerous and very uh, injury. Um, but you're absolutely right. And going back to what we just what we just discussed. Um, Spartak and Dynamo Kiev were just dominating the tournament for, for pretty much ten years. They were the only winners of that of that tournament uh, because other teams were so weak. I remember uh, again, I was I was I was a kid. I was in school and I used to buy this newspaper called uh, Sport Express, um, one of the biggest newspapers in Russia. And I remember buying this newspaper. This uh, the game, the group games weren't really on TV. Only the playoff stage was on TV, so you had to follow the the group stage via the Sport Express paper. And I remember finding out Spartak won against a team. It was nineteen nothing, nineteen nothing. That was the the result. So that just shows the difference in class between Spartak and Dynamo Kiev. And the the rest of the clubs, like sometimes Dinamo Minsk or Dinamo Tbilisi would, would kind of make it to the semifinal stage, but never, they would never like put on a good fight against Spartak or Dinamo Kiev. And always the final was, um, not, not always, but most of the time it was Spartak versus Dinamo Kiev. And that was this, uh, this historical, um, you know, nostalgic, nostalgic feel and the stadium was full for those games and those games were really, really good um, because the teams were really in their prime. But the overall level, the difference in level was just unbelievable. Like that 19 nothing is still to, to my day. Uh, I 
and you can find the highlights. There was like literally there was a goal every couple minutes, every other couple minutes there was a, a goal. It was unbelievable. So that was just um, going back to what you to you were talking about and those teams that the Republics broke down, how that affected the level of football. And to be quite honest, uh, we never heard anything except successes from Russian and Ukrainian clubs on the European stage after the Soviet Union broke up. Georgia didn't have any much success. Armenia, Azerbaijan never really had any European success. Maybe you can say Belarus, but you know they're playing in Champions League group stage is not really a success but um, yeah like it just shows the what what happened to the republics to football in the republics except russia and ukraine after the soviet union broke down it pretty much died unfortunately as it is but it, yes yeah i mean the, the great example is dinamo tbilisi we were actually competitive in, yeah. in in the 1990s but then slowly but surely it's it's a trickle down effect so what happened is um in the in, in the late 1980s, this, the Soviet Union opened up the transfer market to the rest of the world. So a lot of the good players left the Soviet Union, right, and played in Western Europe. And um, after the collapse, that continued. So for the Russian and Ukrainian teams, they did what the West did. So all the their best players went to the West, and then Dynamo in Ukraine or Sparta, or CSKA, all those big teams in Ukraine and Russia said, well, we're just going to sign all the best players from Kazakhstan, Georgia, Armenia, the Baltic states, because, you know, it was easy to integrate these players and they already had that established scouting network because they used to be one country. So, and they had more money than all these other places. And all of a sudden it was a free transfer system. It was no longer limited, right? So they were basically like in, in the past when it was one country, these teams had there was a, there was a Soviet authority that would uh, would register transfers that was gone. So all of a sudden, these teams from Russia and Ukraine could just just buy players with money. So they did, and so they they dried out places like Georgia. I mean, all the best Georgian players played in Russia and in Ukraine, no longer Dynamo Tbilisi, and that's really sad because we talked two weeks ago ago um, how great of a team Dynamo Tbilisi had in the eighties. You know, they were the Uruguayans of Soviet football. They were a beautiful side to watch. And now they were gone because basically of nationalism, which is unfortunate, but it's it's basically the bottom line, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, like this is what happened uh, to, like, and I can tell from, from experience of my own club, uh, Spartak, where we were nine, uh, we won nine leagues out of 10 uh, from, uh, from 1992 till 2001 in Russia. And uh, sometimes uh, by fans of the other, clubs it is criticized like it's it's to me it's an unbelievable achievement regardless but uh, the other fans of the other clubs criticized it because said listen you just got all the best players because we got ukrainians um we got best russians and uh, and people say listen you just got all the best players which you could get some from ukraine some from russia some from all of the clubs you just pretty much built like the the the, the club with the best players and of course you won nine leagues out of ten um but yeah, so so that just shows like to to the point that yeah, the Ukrainian players which we had, we have uh, Viktor Anopka, Nikiforov, Atsimbalar, all those players they could have played in in Ukraine for Dynamo Kiev or for Chernomoris for for those clubs, but they went to Russia, 
ended up being Russian citizens, ended up playing for Russian national team because they had a choice. All the players back then had a choice. They could have chosen their republic or Russia. And uh, most of those players uh, picked Russia because, like you said, Russia had the, the, the all the coefficients and Russia qualified for the 1994 World Cup. So but it wasn't their interest to pick Russian, Russian citizenship, plus playing for Spartak, playing in Europe and playing in, in Moscow. That was, they felt like it was safe, safer bet than, you know, playing in Chernomorets, Odessa, or where those people, those players originally played at. To be fair, though, Dynamo Kiev pretty much did the same in Ukraine. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah, yeah. they dominated. They basically used the advantage that they had from being the top Soviet side. And then they recruited, uh, you know, someone like Kalatze, who played for Dynamo Kiev, right? Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. I mean, that's no, no coincidence. They had some of the best players basically just got them all because of the, this, because they were the big team in Ukraine and they had guaranteed Champions League football. So I think some teams had a bit of an advantage and that advantage wasn't broken up until the oligarchs came in and started financing other teams and sort of changed the status quo in Ukraine and Russia. In other yeah. countries that never happened, the status quo was never challenged uh, for one reason or another. It just didn't happen, maybe because of resources, lack of resources. I think the only post-Soviet country that's sort of seeing an emergence uh, it's an unlikely one, but it is the one that's really doing quite well on the European stage, slowly but surely, is Azerbaijan, um, oh, yeah. of all places. And that they only had one good team, NFG, right? And uh, all of a sudden, they're doing good things in European football, which is it's an interesting one. But um, you point out something completely different as well, and that's the national team. Because the national team, when the Soviet Union collapsed, the national team had already qualified for the 1992 European Championships. Now, remember, the Soviet Union collapsed in December 1991. Um, but the t- there was a tournament to be played in 1992. So they came up with a bit of a creative solution, didn't they, Tim? <laughs> yeah, a very interesting solution. Uh, there's a great uh, article on Football Grad by Vadim Furmanov, who, um, who pretty much kind of gave us an idea to talk about all that topic. Uh, he wrote the article about the national team. Uh, the, the article is called The National Team Without a Nation, the story of CIS at Euro 1992. And uh, really, like as, like, as you can understand from probably 20 past minutes what we just talked, just to summarize in one word, it was a mess. It wasn't disorganized football union with clubs doing whatever they and f- football federations doing whatever they want. Uh, to summarize, it was a complete mess. And that complete mess somehow had to perform in, 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 in Euro at one of the biggest tournaments. And um, it was a very interesting, very interesting approach to, to the way they, they had to, 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 to really to find the team, to, to find the team to play. And really just like, just imagine like, it's, it's hard for, for, for non-Russians or people who don't follow it to imagine. But in this complete mess, to, to really to find players who will be playing for Russia, and it wasn't Russia because the, the the Russian flag wasn't allowed. The Russian anthem wasn't allowed at at the stadium. They played which which song they played was like a symphony. They play yeah. they play they played the symphony instead of, symphony instead of Russia. Yeah. So just imagine like this is this is pretty much describes uh, what was happening in Russian football back in the day. The national team qualifies. They're not allowed to use their flag. And they're not allowed to have their anthem. This is how messy it was. So the the team that actually went to UEFA Euro 1992 included one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen Russians, one, two, three, four Ukrainians, 
uh, one Georgian and one Belarusian player. And they were all playing in Russia, Spain, Italy, Germany, Portugal, Switzerland, uh, Scotland. You know, they were all over the map. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, at that point, the, the Soviet Union had collapsed and it, it was basically a team of individuals, right? Because, um, the transfer market opened up completely and you often hear, and I think this is where the myth comes from that in the 1970s and 1980s, the Soviet Union always had this team that was a unit and there wasn't yeah. very much individuality in that team. But then all of a sudden the transfer market opened up and you have this, this a similar story in hockey as well. Then all of a sudden these Russian or po let's call them Soviet people because they were from all over, right? They were all different citizens. Uh, because some of the Russians that I listed were actually Ukrainians, but they chose to play for Russia after the fall of the Soviet Union. It's very complicated. Anyways, all of a sudden, these people became individuals that looked out for their own interests rather than the interests of that of the collective. And that didn't produce exactly the best results because everyone was just out for the new contract, weren't they? Yeah, like we see, like uh, this is the first time really you see, if you look at the squad of the national team, you have lots of foreign players, like many, many foreign players. I mean, by foreign players, I mean players playing in the foreign leagues, which was completely foreign uh, in the Soviet days. Uh, all the players played in the Soviet league. Nobody played abroad. But uh, like we look at the at the lineup right now, and there's so many people from uh, European leagues. Um, so, like, of course, the, the unity wasn't there. Obviously, like you said, there's there's Ukrainians, there's Russians. If I look at, at, the, at the choice of Russian players, it's a mix uh, of players who won the last Soviet league with CSKA uh, and uh, the mix of players who played for Spartak back then. So that's that's the Russian core, like the core of, of those players of, in that team were from Spartak and CSKA. And then obviously we have like all the Ukrainians primarily from Dynamo Kiev. So really it was just like a, a team which was kind of combined like in a strange way. And the coach Anatoly Bishovitz who did his job in, in in like he got his best result in the in the Olympics, uh, but yeah, like I don't think it's it was a unity. It was a, a one unit, especially compared to the teams where where the Lobanovsky he would take the whole Dynamo Kiev uh, squad and a few players from Spartak and other clubs, and that was the unit. It was it was one. It was pretty much like a club side. The unity of that club of the team. Of that national team was there. This was a very anarchic, anar archaic, and disorganized um, club team without the national anthem, without the flag. Yeah, and without a motivation, right? I yeah. mean, the yeah. the Euro Championship. They they did they did a whole bunch of things. They went to the United States. Remember, this is the the yeah. time of the 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 thaw. You know, the the, the relationship between. <laughs> We can't really say this is the Russian national team because it wasn't. It was it was an all star <laughs> team, but uh, there was they went to they went to um, Miami and Detroit and played at the Astrodome there, and uh, it's all very well outlined in the article. It was a circus, uh, it was an absolute circus, and then the circus went to the European Championships and absolutely got destroyed. And this is not because this was a bad team. You remember, there's a there's a players in there like uh, Oleksiy Mikhailchenko, uh, Andrei Karchelsky. Uh, the current national team coach, uh, Stanislav Jachesov, was part of this team. Viktor Onopko, you know, there's, there's Sergei Kiryakov with a great career with, in Germany. You know, there was a lot of very good players in the side. 
Yeah, and just uh, really to follow up, this this is a tournament which I don't really remember as a kid, but my first World Cup was 1994, mm -hmm. and that whole trend of Russian players moving to Europe continued, and people say that in 1994 we had the best uh, the best generation, the biggest chances of like the, the most talented squad we had. And again, for the same reasons that uh, there was a conflict, uh, literally because of the socks, uh, they couldn't really agree which socks to use in terms of like the sponsorship deals because the European players who played in Europe um, had one vision, uh, the, the, the Russian Federation had another vision, it was a complete mess. And it's really just to take those two tournaments, 1992 and 1994, Russia had a wonderful, wonderful generation of those uh, players we had. Uh, we had just fantastic players like Shalimov, Kanchelsky, Svikalichenko, like all those like really, really good players who played, who did really well in Europe. And Russia literally did nothing in those two tournaments. Like there was like uh, both the results were like they didn't really make it to the playoff. And uh, it's really, really sad. I remember being a kid and I remember seeing all those players play at the high level in Europe and expecting, oh, okay, maybe we'll get a chance here. And then just really yeah. seeing a very sad tournament well it's it's interesting because yes you're absolutely right the 1994 squad i have it right in front of me they were all playing in germany and spain and in england <laughs> you know yeah. these these were good players and i think this is really the question and what is the legacy of this all because you remember like six years before that that team more or less you know a lot of these players um went to the final of the 1988 European Championships in Germany. And it all was gone. The, the entire system just collapsed in itself. And I think that it's, that's, that's an interesting point because up until the conflict in Ukraine, there was a big, was a very strong likelihood that there would be a new unified league sort of to recreate this because Ukrainian and Russian clubs were very interested in merging their leagues uh, in more or less creating that competitiveness that they had during the time of the Soviet Union. So is that maybe the, the biggest legacy of Soviet football that unlike the Soviet Union, you know, it, it, was, a, it was a dictatorship, it was a communist dictatorship. Um, a lot of people are nostalgic about it, but there was a lot of things wrong with the state as well. But in terms of football, is that the legacy of it, that it was actually better in terms of cooperation, in terms of having these clubs compete against each other on a regular basis and produce better players because of that? Yeah, like the, the the legacy is really to to me it's it's a kind of a little bit questionable topic because it's 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 really hard like it's it's very really hard to evaluate the the, the whole thing that happened because um, you know the country broke up and they they kind of had to to follow that um, follow football had to follow what was happening in politics and we had great generations and great clubs and a few clubs really stayed at the same level but um if you compare like the soviet Vyshaya liga which was historically like you said with the coefficients one of the strongest in europe the russian and ukrainian leagues are if you take two top leagues of the post-soviet you know they're not there in terms of in terms of national team um soviet um ussr won European trophies uh, in terms of European championship. They won Olympic Games. Russia and Ukraine never done this. Um, only Ukraine uh, went uh, to the playoff of uh, the World Cup and Russia in, in 2008. But no trophies, no trophies. So in terms of legacy, if you take, if you compare Soviet versus the, the post-Soviet, obviously the Soviet was more successful. But it's it wasn't a choice. It was just the political situation, which... Uh, the countries had to follow. So it's really, 
it's 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 a hard topic to to describe and really without really digging deep you can't really have an opinion in that because it's it like i said it was a complete mess um but yeah like uh, man, we didn't as a fans as a football fan i i didn't really have a choice i had to support russia and um i had to support my spartak which i'm doing to this day <laughs> yeah i think that's i think it is a very difficult topic in terms of legacy because there is all the negative connotations of the soviet union right but on the other hand that Soviet, that Soviet league was so something else, you know, and if you, if you are trying to understand what we're talking about, go on YouTube and watch some of the highlights and the, it, it was a special competition and, you know, it was the, it was a Champions League before the Champions League existed because it was a multinational competition and it worked very well. So I think that's, in my opinion, that's one of the, the legacies, but in terms of you so right, Tim, this, the political connotation makes it so difficult. When it, to talk about actual legacy, so I th I think in some ways the the judgment is still out, and I think when you when you look at all the things that are happening in the post Soviet space, there's so many things going on politically that we're still learning what the actual fallout of it all is and where we're going with it. So it's it's a, a fascinating topic because of that, and I think it's an I think it's 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 really great that we actually got to discuss it today. So I, I kind of want to wrap it up there, Tim. Um, Tim, what's going on in your life? Where can people find you? And if they have questions about all of these things that we've discussed, where can they where can they shoot your questions and maybe get get some information? Yeah, the best way to get in touch with me is uh, on Twitter, RussianTim61, or Instagram, RocketFromRussia. Uh, feel free to uh, send us feedback. We're always looking for new topics. Like I mentioned, Pete, in the beginning of uh, the pod, he was... He was telling us, please talk about Dynamo Moscow. Please talk about Dynamo Moscow. Here it is. We talked uh, quite a bit today about Dynamo Moscow. But if you have any other questions or maybe requests or just uh, if you want to uh, talk Spartak to me uh, online, I'm always open for that. So Russian Team 61, the rocket from Russia. Yeah, good one to follow. And yes, please, please, please. If you have any topics you want to us to discuss, um, we got 20 minutes of Dynamo Moscow in today. I think Dynamo Moscow deserves a special one of these days because it's such a historical club. We'll have to perhaps organize something along those lines. But yeah, please send us questions in, um, on Twitter, uh, Football Grad Live or my own Twitter account at Manuel Vef. I'm always happy to discuss. I have a PhD in Russian football history and post-Soviet football history and Soviet football history of all things. So if you have any questions related to the Soviet Union and football, I'm your man. And, uh, I'm always happy to discuss all these things. And I think, uh, we'll, we'll do some more historical podcasts as we try to get through this very long winter break. So if you have anything that you want us to discuss, please shoot us a message. And, uh, also on iTunes, of course, where you can find us as well. Um, any kind of feedback is always very welcome. But yeah, that's it. Um, that's it for this week. We'll be back next week. Until then, Dosvidanya. It wouldn't be the holiday season if there wasn't candy. 
right? Celebrate the holiday season with the Holiday Crush. They've sprinkled candy with a holiday theme and fun-packed challenges every week for five whole weeks, finishing on January 4th. The more challenges you complete, the better your chances of unwrapping delicious rewards. So, are you ready to crush the holidays? Play the Holiday Crush now. Download it from the App Store, Google Play, or Windows Store for free. Terms and conditions apply. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.